0: We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. We come to a high and lofty portion of Scripture. A lot of the high theology here, which we will seek to unpack. We will definitely use some theological language, uh, but we must use the language and know the language to make sure we uh, don't say something about our God we ought not to say. And so we're going to see Christ, who is the firstborn of creation. Uh, it is debated whether or not verses 15 through 20 is a hymn, but nonetheless, it is still, there's so much high Christology that is there. Uh, we're going to split it up. We'll look at verses five, 15 through 17 this morning, but I'm going to read to verse 23 to set the context for us. So, Colossians 1, begin reading at verse 15. the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I Paul became a minister. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God and Father, we are thankful for the fact that you sent the Son, and we're thankful that the Son sent you and the Son send the Spirit. And we ask that the Spirit would be amongst us this day once again as we come to consider who Christ is, who the Son is, in his person and in his work. And we come to some rich theology, O oh God, that is difficult for us to comprehend. But help us not to fancy you what you ought not to be. Help us to make sure that we are coming to worship the true God and the true King. And so often, O oh God, we like to make you in our image, but help us to remember that we have been made in your image. And we're thankful, O oh God, that you have redeemed that image in the Son. Thank you for the one who is eternally begotten, and thank you for the one who was sent. Thank you that he came into this world, took on human flesh for us men and for our salvation. We know that all that you do in this world, O God, is for your glory, but it is for us. And we need such a redeemer as you. The one who is king, the one who is over all things, is the one who is king of his people. And the king uh, who rules each and every one of our hearts this day, uh, who are his, who is his. And help us to be reminded of that, O God, who we are in him that you do love us and we see your love and that you sent forth your son uh, to be that one who turns away the wrath of God. So thank you that you, O creator care for us and thank you that you care for us as we see this in your son who redeemed us and has given us new life in him. So may this be a great comfort and boon to our souls. As we see the image renewed in Christ, who is the eternally begotten son. So help us by your spirit to have illumination. Help us by your spirit to have, to have a better understanding of who you are and what you've done. For we need this, O oh God, as we come to consider matters that are too wonderful for us. So help us, O oh God, as we seek to parse out what is going on here. May your name be hallowed. May your name be glorified. And may it teach us uh, to be more reverenced before you, to be more in awe of you, to be uh, in more in, uh, come out and approach you with more reverence and with more awe that you are God and you love us. So be with us now by your spirit. Give us illumination, we pray. And we pray all day these things for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we consider the person of the son, it is a great mystery for us. The fact that we have one person who is two natures, fully God and fully man. And the fact that great mystery highlights as well, that there is no confusion of those natures. He is fully each of those natures and as we consider this blessed union in the Son in christ it is something that cannot be acquired through the study of nature it is something that cannot be understood through the world uh, observing the world in which we live we need special revelation we need god to reveal these things to us in his word and in salvation and even more so we need the spirit to understand these very things Unless the spirit opens our eyes, we cannot see that the one who saves us is fully God and fully man. We need spiritual eyes to be able to see and confess because our minds cannot comprehend such things. And you see, even though it is a great mystery, it is still of eternal importance that we consider who Jesus is, who is the son, who is he in his person and in his work. And the reason it's of eternal importance is because the one who redeems us is the one who is the creator of all things. And this plays an important role for the Apostle Paul as we come to the book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul wants us to see how practical Christology is, that is the study of Christ in his person and his work, what it means for our salvation and what it means for our life now as we walk in this world, especially in the light of of men who teach us and try to pull us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that was what was going on here with the church at Colossae. Remember, Paul's in prison. He hears about all that God has done from Epaphras, who perhaps was the pastor, or at least the planter, uh, possibly the planter of the church at Colossae, heard of those great things, heard of their faith and love and hope, heard about all that they were doing but also heard that there were men who were threatening that men who taught heresy, men who perhaps were blending ideas of uh, uh, Judaism, blending ideas of uh, paganism, blending ideas of mysticism together saying you don't need Christ. You need all of these other things. So Paul writes to deal with that very thing. He wants to encourage them where their hope and their strength lies. And it's not in some sort of mystical understanding of the world. It lies in Christ And in Christ alone. And the problem that we see here, and the problem that runs through the entire book the problem of empty philosophy, traditions of men, and basic principles that lead us away from Christ the Redeemer and Christ the Creator. You see, these heretics seem to emphasize their own control of the world rather than recognizing the one who it is that in him all things consist. They were focusing in on their power rather than the power that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our salvation hinges. The crux of our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. And if we get that wrong, our salvation crumbles. And so we must know who he is. We must confess who he is, because it is also what grounds the spiritual work of God in us. We must confess that he is Lord of creation, but also that he is Lord of the new creation which is the church of the living God. So there's a lot to unpack here in these verses. And this morning, we're going to focus in on Christ, the creator in verses 15 through 17. Next week, we'll see Christ, the redeemer, or Christ, the Lord of new creation. But this morning, we'll look at how Christ, the redeemer is God, the creator. So that's the main idea. Christ, the redeemer is God, the creator. And we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the firstborn of creation, verse 15. We'll see that he is the firstborn of creation, verse 15. And then secondly, we'll see that he is the source of creation, verses 16 and 17. So the firstborn of creation, verse 15, then the source of creation, verses 16 and 17. As I said, we're going to use some theological language here. I've used it before, but it's language we ought to know as we consider who our God is. Maybe not everything, uh, but it's important for us to, again, make sure we don't say something about God we ought not to say. So uh, buckle up as we go uh, through this. So notice, we see he is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. Now, remember the context. This is perhaps a transition, but also a continuation of the prayer that we see in verses 3 through 14. And remember Paul's prayer in verse 9. He prays that the church, that they, and also by extension, because God still speaks in his word, you, that the church of the living God would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And the way in which we are filled with the knowledge of his will is with wisdom and spiritual understanding. And what's the purpose that we might know his will or uh, what's the purpose for knowing his will in order that you might walk in a way that is pleasing unto him. Then he goes on to unpack how it is we walk in him by bearing fruit, by growing in the knowledge of him, by being strengthened by, G- by God, and also giving thanks unto him. Then with that thanksgiving, he talks about how what God the Father has done for us. He's made us partakers of the heavenly kingdom. And how he does that is by delivering us from the power of darkness, conveying us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we, he's continuing to ground us in Christ. Our spiritual walk is grounded in him. So he goes on to use this high language to speak about our Christ as a way that grounds us in him, in our spiritual walk. So he's making Christology very practical for us. Theology ought always to be practical as we know him and seek to live in a way that is pleasing unto him. And also to humble us and recognize that we are not the creator. He is, and he is the one who ought to be worshipped. And also, it also reminds us too and gives us comfort that he is also the redeemer. When you consider he is the creator, consider our sins against him as the creator Yet he is pleased to redeem us in the son. So all this language, hopefully, is ought, ought to humble us and cause us to be more in awe of our God, who is the creator. And the idea, too, of creation runs throughout this book. He's going to compare the old creation with the new. We're going to see the new creation next week in verses 18 through 20. We've already seen reference to the old creation in verses 6 and 10, fruitful an increase is very similar to the language in Genesis 1:28 be fruitful and multiply which the first adam failed in but in the last adam he is spreading his glory to the ends of the earth and one thing it's important to highlight why it's better in the last adam is you see that in the first adam what he, uh, the first adam had communion with god that is true but he had the ability to lose it through sin and guess what he does he loses it through sin The only way one has unbroken communion with God is if Adam had kept the law perfectly, which he didn't. But in the last Adam who keeps the law perfectly, that communion can never be broken. In Christ and in Christ alone, that communion can never be taken away. And that's why it is better than the beginning because the new creation is founded on a more stable and sure anchor than that first Adam. And that's important for the book. When we see the language of in him, all the deity, uh, fullness of the deity dwells. Perhaps some of these heretics were saying we entered into communion with God through our way, through mysticism, through some other way than Christ himself. And so Paul wants us to highlight the way in which we have communion with God is with the one who is the creator. And so he refers to the son of his love who redeems us is the one mentioned in verse 15. And so notice he says, he is the image of the invisible God. So what does it mean that he is the image? Now, John Davenant highlights three ways we see image in scripture. Typically image just means that which has the same form as something else, that which reflects or perhaps is the same as, uh, but there are ways, three ways we see it unfold in scripture. One, one, is in the eternal relation to God. That is, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Second, external relation to creation. What that means is Adam being made in God's image. And then third, relation to the creature renewed, what we are in the new Adam. So that's the three ways we see the image. And all three of those ways are going to be very important for what we see in these verses and throughout the entire book. And so certainly the idea of us being created in God's image, Genesis 1, should certainly be in mind. But that when we are created in God's image, notice that we are created in God's image. We have been made in God's image. You see, we are not essentially God, but we were made to reflect God's glory. What makes us different from creature isn't just our ability to think, but is the fact that we've been made in the image of God. And Adam was supposed to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. That's what be fruitful, multiply, meant in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And we all know what happened. He didn't do that, did he? Instead, he sought his own glory. Instead, he wanted to be God. In fact, when the serpent says in Genesis 3, you will be like God, it's actually probably you'll be like gods. That is, you'll be little gods. That is, they desired to have their own authority over and against God. And so Adam brought sin into this world. Now, man is still, when they're even in a fallen world, is still made in the image of God. It's tainted. It is corrupt, but it's still remains there that's why we need it to be renewed but the created image and the renewed image are copies and they are copies of the one who is the original and the one who is the original is the one who is eternally begotten of the father you see that and I think that's the language with what is going on here. Certainly, Paul is going to talk about Christ as image when it comes to his renewing, taking on human flesh. But here in verse 15, he's talking about his eternal relation to the Father. He is, notice, the image of the invisible God. And in the language of God here, certainly in this instance, yes, the Son is God, but God here does have reference to the Father. We've seen verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. We saw in verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father. And so we have a clear uh, uh, text that speaks about the relation of the Son to the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. He's of the same substance as the Father. First Timothy 1.17, who is the invisible God we ought to praise, immortal, invisible God who alone is wise. In other places as well, us give this attribute to God, as well in the Bible the Son is called God. He is ascribed divine attributes. He performs divine acts, and he is worshipped as God. And as especially in these verses, we're going to see that he is the one. Who perform, performs the act of creation? You see, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That's also a great mystery, isn't it? It's not three gods, but one God. But it's also not, it's also not just one person, but three persons. The Son is the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Yet they're not three gods, but one God. They are three persons. And so we see this language here. He is the image of the invisible God. The Son is of the same substance as the Father. The Holy Spirit is of the same substance as the Father. And as these verses unpack, he is the one who has created the world, not the one who was created with the world. And so the Trinity gives us pause to stop and consider it is something that cannot be comprehended or even really apprehended by nature because it doesn't doesn't seem to make sense for us because well how is it one in three but it's one god not three gods and three persons not one person but one god and three persons and so the language here as we consider this mystery is that of eternal generation highlighting that unique relationship of the son to the father And as Davenant says, the Father and the Son are not the same person, yet they are the same essence. And as our confession says, we're not to divide God in nature and being, but distinguish him by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. That is, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. Yet the Son is Father is God, the Son is God And the spirit is God. And so that eternal notional act is the father begets the son eternally. uh, uh, Eternally. It's an eternal generation, a relation of origin. The eternal father communicates the whole divine essence, but the son does not derive essence from the father. And to perhaps use a profane example, in Genesis 5, 1 1 through 3... As the Bible says, Adam was made in the likeness of God there. But as Adam bears Seth, he says, Seth was made in the likeness of Adam, right? You see, a finite creature like you and I begets finite creatures, but to some likeness. But when you consider the fact that God, the Father who is eternal, he must beget someone who is eternal as well. So the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And so that's the procession, that's God's perfection in and of himself, this eternal relation of origin, eternally generated. What does that have to do with us? Well, A, he's God, and that's hard for us to comprehend, but B, it also gives us comfort and strength when we see what the Son does as he reveals the Father in his mission. When I talk about the mission, I'm talking about that second person taking on human flesh. I'm talking about the incarnation. I'm talking about the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. I'm talking about the son being sent, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem us who are under the law. See, the son is the one who takes on human flesh. And it's in the son that we see the revelation of God to us as he is God, but also the revelation of the father in him. Think of the language of John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. No one has seen God except the one who is God. Or also think of John 14. You know, the passage we all know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. What does he go on to say? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And then Philip asks, God, show us the father. And Jesus is like, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. How is it that you're asking me, show me the father when you've seen me? And so the one who is eternally generated is the one who takes on human flesh and images the father in this present world. That we who are humans, that we who are finite, might see God in him. How do we see God, brethren? In the Son. We cannot comprehend God in his essence because we are not God. We know the infinite God in a finite way. And the one who is infinite took on human flesh and became incarnate. Fully God, fully man, And he, in his work, reveals the Father to us. So how do we know the Father? It is in the Son who is God. How do we see the one we can't see? How do we see the one who is invisible? It is in the one who reveals by taking on human flesh. So the eternal Son, in his mission, reveals, but also in his mission, redeems. And this is where the idea of image is so very, very, very important. When you consider that we have fallen, when you consider its sinfulness, when you consider our wickedness, what does the son do? Redeems that image in his finished work, in his cross work. He takes what Adam could not do. He takes what uh, the, the sin that Adam uh, 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 brought into the world and that you and I uh, and our sins that we brought into the world, and he bears that punishment upon himself. Why? That we might be saved most assuredly, that we might have, ever, have everlasting life most assuredly, but that his image might be redeemed. Jesus in the incarnation renews the image of man that was corrupted in Adam. What's interesting is Adam himself was supposed to image the eternal God. And I'm going to use big words in just a second here. I'll use them now. But the idea of archetype and ectype, it's that image of copy and original. You see, always, always Adam was that copy. Adam was always that copy of the one who is the original. And you see what that highlights for us is salvation was always going to be in the Son who would come down. Salvation was always meant to be in that last Adam. Beale says, we think it best that Christ in the image of God is the original and perfect archetypal image, likeness, representation, and revelation of God, after which the human Adam was to be patterned as that ek. Typical image. You see, Christ is always and has been the original. Adam was always that copy, yet the one who is original took on human flesh to die for sinners. Why does he come down to reveal the Father, but also to redeem sinners and bring back that communion that was lost and to have communion with the God of heaven and earth? So let's unpack there with the language of image, but I do believe it is referring to that eternal relation of origin. But then notice he continues to unpack what this means. Firstborn over all creation. That should be the translation. Firstborn over all creation. There are some heretics, the Arians specifically, and now JWs, Jehovah Witnesses in our modern times, who say that there was a time when the sun was not is the son was the first created being. And they like to pounce on this language of firstborn, overall creation. It must mean that he was the first created being. But if you read and I see it, it says begotten, not made. And I think the language of firstborn here is not indicating time, but preeminence, indicating he is not the first created but he is the one who has created all things. I mean, that's the language, firstborn over all creation. And then he goes to unpack what that means in verses 16 and 17. But we can also highlight that he is not the first created by that language of firstborn. Because the language of firstborn can mean, yes, firstborn, the first one who was born out of a family. Or, as we see in the scriptures, especially in Exodus 4, Israel was the firstborn of God, right? Were they the greatest? Were they actually literally the firstborn? I mean, Jacob was not the firstborn, right? And, you know, technically Isaac wasn't the firstborn, was he? I know to Sarah he was, but not to Abraham. Or what about David? Was David the firstborn? What's interesting, too, is firstborn is actually used in Psalm 89 to refer to David's son who would come as the firstborn king. And so what firstborn has to do with in the Old Testament is one who has authority and power, one who has the right of the firstborn, one who has the authority to rule. And so the language of firstborn here highlights the one who has authority and rule over creation. What he's saying here is he is the king of creation. He is the sovereign over all things. And Beale's commenting on Psalm 89, and the idea of archetype comes again here with that Psalm 89 passage. He says, there will come a time when the archetypal king will become incarnate and fulfill in history the psalm's typological prophecy. The one who is the firstborn overall would come down and be the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead. The firstborn of the of, from the dead, that in all he may have the preeminence. And look, looky, Lou, look at verse eighteen. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What Paul is doing in these verses is highlighting the one who is the creator is the one who is the redeemer, and the one who is the redeemer is the one who is the firstborn from the dead. That is the messianic king of the new creation. And all those who've been redeemed and saved in him have him not only uh, have him not only as king of creation, but their king in new creation. He has made all things in him. That's the language that is going on here. And this idea of of his first being firstborn over the resurrection from the dead or the firstborn of the dead comes up in Revelation, comes up here, comes up in Hebrews as well. And it all has a very important application for us. And this is the application He is the image who renews our image, the eternal archetype image who created the ectypal image, Adam, to reflect him, assumes human flesh, images the Father, that he might redeem our fallen image. All you have to get out of that is he redeems our fallen image. And guess what he says in Colossians 3.10, when we get to the application section of the book. He says, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to To the image of him who created him. See, brethren, in a world where there's an identity crisis, where people don't know who they are, Christians ought not to struggle with that thing or that idea. Who who are we, dear brethren? We are in Christ and we have been renewed in his image. And chapters 3 and 4 deal with how we live as that new image. That's the Christian life. The one who we are supposed to reflect in this world is the Son. And in fact in uh, Romans 8:29 we are being conformed into the image of his Son. When we die to sin day by day and grow unto the image of him, when we seek to honor and glorify him, we are simply reflecting in whose image we have been redeemed. He is the one we must reflect He is the one we ought to glorify. He is the one whose image we've been created in creation, but even more importantly, been redeemed in new creation. You see, this whole thing teaches us, see how practical it is? The one who is the son who took on human flesh, the one who redeems us and in whose image we are in, here's how we live as that image. And notice what he says in Colossians 3. Now yourselves are to put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his, with his deeds. And he's going to talk about in verse 11 how there's, it's for all who believe, and all who believe shall be in his image. And then verse 12, as the elect, holy, beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. He goes on to speak of other things. He goes on to talk about husbands and wives and children and bond servants, but how we reflect God's glory is in the power and strength of God in Christ, we ought to seek to live in a way that honors and pleases him because we've been renewed in his image. So that's the firstborn of creation. Let's then look secondly at the king of creation or the source of creation, verses 16 and 17. So this unpacks the fact he is over all creation. Notice, for by him, All things were created. He was not created, but by him, all things were created. This certainly ought to draw our attention back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Notice in the beginning, there's creation and the one who created. And in fact, when you study theology, we're really studying God and all things, not God, that God has created. So Genesis 1 should be in mind. But hopefully John 1 is in your mind as well. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through him. Nothing that was made, uh, uh, nothing that was made, uh, it's a very, very convoluted sentence. I'm going to mess it up if I don't look at it. Yeah, nothing, uh, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That's in the sun. So the sun creates And God creates. I wonder what the Bible is trying to teach us about who the Son is. And remember, the Bible says there is one God. So that's difficult for us. That's what theology helps us think through. How the Bible says there's one God, yet the Father is God. And speaks about the Son as God and the Holy Spirit as God as well. And so God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one source of creation. The Father is the one source of the Son, eternally begotten, but the one source of creation is Father, Son, and Spirit, including the one who is Son. And so here, he, the Son, is the one who creates all things. And notice it gives the extent, heaven and earth. Again, that probably has that Genesis 1 in mind. And it refers to the whole created universe. All the things that are visible and invisible with what what he will say that is at the creation when God spoke, when God created in the space of six days, six literal days, by the way, that it was uh, according to his might and power. But there uh, was, he is the one who spoke it into being before God existed. Now, God is above time, God is eternal, but God. Creates time and space and all things. So everything in the universe he creates by the word of his power. And the Son, by him, all things were created. Who is the Word that are in heaven and on earth? And notice the redemptive work, this, uh, the, this redemption and uh, uh, saving act that God does in the Son. It has heaven and earth implications. And by him, verse twenty. To reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Old creation, new creation. Running roughshod through this entire book. But in verse 16, he goes on to further explain visible and invisible. Things that are seen and things that are not seen. Contrary to modern materialistic understanding, there is a spiritual world out there. I mean, there really is the things not seen and the things that are seen. And certainly he goes on to unpack what this means with thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now, what in the world do those refer to? I admit it's probably pretty difficult to understand what they are, but two ways we can take it, and I perhaps it's a both and. One, it can refer to human governments. It can refer to that, those in power. Or perhaps more connected with the book is the idea of the angelic realm. That is the highest beings that God has created. The sun is above and beyond them. The sun is over and beyond them. And that is important for this book. I'm not gonna unpack each word. That would be very tedious. But the problem of this book, and really what was prevalent at the time of Colossians, is the reality of magic. Magic was prevalent during the Greco-Roman world people like to dabble in it in fact there's probably evidence the pharisees dabbled in it i mean mark chapter 1 you have to ask yourself why is there a demon possessed man in the in the synagogue the only way that happens is if they're doing something to invite that demon into that synagogue and there is actually history some historical evidence that shows that well the pharisees did dabble in a little magic and usually magic typically was you wanted to control the spiritual realm or you want to control those who perhaps were around you. It really was all about one's own power over another. And so certainly if there's this influence of paganism, influence of Greek, mytho- uh, Greek mysticism going on here uh, at the, the church at Colossae, it's not surprising that Paul is saying there is one who has might and power over them, one who has power over these realms. Why worship them? And in fact, notice what he does say in chapter 2 18 he's gonna just rip them to shreds in chapter 2 but verse 18 he says let no one cheat you of your reward take delight taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels what they were doing here was saying that there's something you ought to focus in on rather than christ what we have to say our initiatory right say these magic words and things will all be better we have some sort of secret knowledge. Here's the way to it. What Paul is saying is you don't need to do that. There's one you can look to. There's one in whom uh, in whom you dwell. There's one who is yours, and that is Christ. You see, all everything that is not Christ takes us away from where our hope lies. John Davenant, again, he says, and the apostle introduces this excellent personal description of Christ that it may more evidently appear with what security we can repose all our hopes of salvation in such Redeemer, that all other method methods of salvation foisted in by seducers ought to be rejected as most palpable fables. Now, brethren, maybe there aren't people saying, "Let's say a bunch of magic words, and this is how we find this is how we find communion with God." You know, in churches, but sometimes a lot of churches turn their eyes off, off Christ. And his finished work. And they had Christ and him crucified. I want 10 reasons for how to live a better life. That's the focus. Rather than Jesus and us being grounded in him. And if we take away where our grounding lies, what benefit are those other things? We must have th- true theology that helps us in our Christian walk. That's why Christology is so helpful and important. And even too in chapter 10. Well, he's going he's to talk about basic principles. But chapter 10, he says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power Christ is head over all earthly governments and Christ is head over angelic governments as well and even 215 he's going to say having disarmed through his cross having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it Who is king over all? Who is king over the things seen and things unseen? It is the son. It is Christ. Why focus on all these other things that are called empty philosophy, traditions of men, basic principles, and not according to Christ? Christ is triumphed. Don't focus on those things. Focus on him. And also it's a great comfort to the people of God Because when there are threats to the church from said men, from said malevolent spirits, we have Christ. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God, right? We have the armor of God in Christ against those things. Our comfort does not lie in things that don't matter, in mystical experiences, in funny uh, sort of uh, traditions of men but in Christ and in Christ alone, who is creator of all things, who is the source of all things, who is the end of all things. And notice the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Again, he's affirming he is the creator and sovereign king over all, but notice the end. It is for him. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What was Adam supposed to do? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the crux of sin? What is the, 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 the disease of sin? Not glorifying God. Idolatry, wickedness, sinfulness. That's what it is, isn't it? Isn't that the greatest symptom? There's you know, all the other sins that we commit as a symptom of that very thing. Love of self. Love of our own, love of our own gain rather than love of God. And that's why, as one writer says, that's why missions exists because worship and glory and glorifying God does not. One man brought sin and misery into this world and a man was supposed to glorify him, but man did not. And if you're not in Christ, you've been created in the image of God, but your image has been distorted and you despise God. You hate God. And just as you despise and hate God and engage in idolatry, you will face the punishment for that very thing. That is, this old creation will pass away. And those who are in the old image will be punished forever. But there is mercy and forgiveness in the one who redeems the image. In Jesus Christ. And if you believe upon him, you shall have everlasting life and the reason you need him is because you do not glorify God, but find mercy and forgiveness in the one who is the creator and the one who is the redeemer. All things are through him and for him, and as we've been redeemed, brethren, all the things we ought to do, because we've been redeemed in him, all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, but because we've been forgiven in him, we ought to then glorify him. It doesn't say that type of language, but The concept is in verse 17 of chapter three, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the father through him, our entire life, as we seek to love our spouses, as we seek to work in our jobs, as we seek to live uh, in this world, it ought to be for his glory and his glory alone. As we are redeemed in him, he is the source And he is the end of all things for from him and through him and to him are all things. So he is the creator. But notice also in verse 17, he is the providential upholder of all things. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. He is the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. And notice we see accommodation language here for us. We think in time and space, right? We think temporally. We think this moment, by this moment, by that moment. God's as eternal is outside of time. So that's hard for us. But this is accommodated, accommodation language to us. He is before all things. He is before all things. He is before all things, temporally and in rank. He is not one of the created But he is the creator who is eternal. So he is before all things. And notice, in him, all things consist. In him, all things consist. You see, when the son takes on human flesh, he does not cease to be God. There is a false doctrine predicated on Philippians 2, where it it seems like he's saying he emptied himself. The son never empties himself of deity. The language there highlights he made himself of no reputation. The one who is God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but took on human flesh to save us. So there's a great mystery, even too, in the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. That's hard for us to grasp, right? Fully God and fully man. And that's important. Again, we ought ought not to say something about God uh, we shouldn't be saying. And so notice in him still, all things consist. The one who is son is still remains God. The one who is son in his human nature is at the right hand of God, but the one who is son in his divine nature is everywhere present. Listen to Hilary of Poitiers I don't know if I said that correctly, but one of the church fathers. He says, talking about the Incarnation, "The infant wails, but is in heaven. The boy grows, but remains immeasurable God." The infant wails, but is in heaven. The boy grows, but remains a measurable God. And the same thing is true of the son. The same, that is uh, absolutely true of the one who is son, fully God and fully man. So in him, everything lives and moves and has its being. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter one. And this is contrary to other ideas that the world might suggest. Is it the universe itself? Is it other sort of angels? Is it ideas? or No, it is the sun. Chrysostom says, not only did he himself bring them out of nothing into being, but himself sustains them now. So they, that were they dissevered from his providence, they were at once undone and destroyed. You see, what that highlights is all, when we breathe, every move we make, we are being upheld by him. In him, we live and move and have our being. And if you are not in Christ, once again, that just makes you more obligated. Because it shows that there is a God in this world yet you do not worship him. It makes you more obligated before the high king of heaven. And the only way of salvation is in the son in whom all things consist. And I think that's the great comfort of this section. And what he wants the believers at Colossae and what he wants us to see about the one who is the creator of all things. He wants us to see that the one who redeems us is that, the creator. The king of the church is the king over the world. And he wants us to see that the way of salvation is not in some sort of secret knowledge, but in the one who created all things. And when you stop and consider that very thing, the fact that this one created the whole world and upholds it, by the word of his power, save sinners. If you're in Christ and he saves you, the king of creation cares for you. That ought to cause us to stop, ponder, and be humbled by who our God is. Stop and consider that we see God in the Son when we did not deserve that. We ought to stop and ponder and consider that we have communion with God, with the Creator. Because he came and died for us. Davenant says, Here we behold the divine wisdom and goodness. For he who is the invisible God proposes to mankind the visible Son and God manifest in the flesh, that by him who is the light, the way, and the truth, we may more easily approach to him who is invisible and incomprehensible. Brethren, when the whole world is being shaken, when our lives are being shaken, remember the king of the world, the creator of the world cares for you. That ought to give us great comfort in this fallen world in which we live in, that we have been redeemed in the one who creates all things. May it cause us to stop and consider and be in awe of the one who is our God. And I think what Paul is really trying to say to us here is behold your God, worship him. Let us pray. Lord our God, these are high and lofty things that we consider, yet things so comforting to our hearts and our souls. That the one who is the creator took on human flesh, and in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Thank you for this. Thank you for his cross work. Thank you for his dying and rising again, that we might see in the mission of the Son your love and your care for us. And how you truly have redeemed us, truly have given us new life, truly have renewed uh, our fallen image, O oh God. Thank you, O oh God, for this truth. Thank you for this reality. Thank you that it grounds us in our Christian walk of who we are in Jesus, who we are in the Son, who we are in the finished work. And thank you, O oh God, that the Son really is the image of the invisible God, the first one of creation. Thank you that the Son is the one who created all things, and all things were before all he is before all things, and he is uh, in him all things consist, and we're thankful, O oh God, that he is the head of the new creation. So may this give us comfort and strength as we go out uh, into the world. May we know that the God of heaven is for us, that for us men and for our salvation. Thank you, O oh God, for your love, thank you, O oh God, for your mercy. Uh, give us strength as we go out into the world, give us strength as we seek to live in a way that is pleasing unto you, may we do so by your strength and by your power, filled with the knowledge of you, may you give us your spirit in this, and if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls, please give them new life uh, in the sun, that you might redeem and renew their image as well. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray, in the name of Christ, amen.